Hi, and welcome to the latest of our interview specials. And in this episode, we're talking to Judith and Garfield Reese Stevens. They are husband wife writing team, and with a especially long history with the Star Trek franchise, from writing novels and behind the scenes books in the Next Generation days, uh, and later being much more directly involved in the creative process of the show itself. As we talk to them, their resume is very varied, and we touch on such diverse subjects as their work with NASA uh, and the Disney Imagineers, uh, and other TV shows they've worked on, including the Batman animated series. Liam is very excited about that in particular and a whole host of other projects they have in various stages of production we hope you enjoy this episode and on with the show we usually start with kind of you know um if you were fans of star trek before you get involved in it how do you get involved in the star trek world but it kind of struck me that as a husband and wife writing team um really we should kind of ask about your origin story first of how you met each other and how that all came about well when we learned that our home planet was going to explode (laughs) (laughs) that's right um uh we still marvel would it even happen um we we met in educational publishing book publishing in math and language arts that's where we uh we were both we both were, were drawn to yeah, uh, to books to books books and stories, and we that was one of the first places that we got into it. And um, when Star Trek marked the end of our yeah. educational career, because we had written a series of science and technology textbooks called Science Around Me for grades one, two, and three, and we did work with kids from fifty five countries at at one school, dressed up in our white. Our little white garments, etc. Lab coach. <laughs> Lab coach, showing them how oil and water can help break. You can break the bond with uh, if you're making muffins and you can bring them at the sink. But all they ever wanted to talk about was if Garfield knew that his name was the name of a cat. Got <laughs> <laughs> to get out of the way first. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But after, after, yeah. so that that was we started up working for publishers. We ended up writing this textbook series that went right across Canada, and then. Sort of after three years of dealing with the educational bureaucracy, we said we needed something simpler, something more fun. And but, that's when we wrote our first Star Trek novel. Together. But Gar had already been writing horror novels. And uh, and so he had he had written them and he had a publisher for that. And I, we had publishers for educational material. And we ended up going on this great cross-country <laughs> thing, going from one side of the country to the other. Every, every few days we would go to another province. We covered the whole country in three weeks, and in the morning we would talk about uh, the uh, sort of like possession from the uh, like the Antichrist Clone. with cloning the Antichrist from the Shroud of Turin, <laughs> and in the afternoon we would talk science with for grades one, two, and three, and so that's that's how we then bridged into fiction, and we decided we'd like to write something, and Star Trek was something that occurred to both of us. Right, we both like Star Trek. We well, we, my brother loved it. And, <laughs> Leave me out of it. <laughs> yes, my brother did, and and he to this day is just struck in awe that I was involved with it at all. <laughs> but we um, and I guess we had noticed there were some Star Trek novels on the stand, and we thought, boy, wouldn't it be fun to write one of those? And and we had an agent. We had an agent, so we submitted some ideas and to we, New York. And we yeah. ended up uh, writing Memory Prime. Yeah, and they hadn't even met us. So we just sent like it in. Late 80s, mail. wasn't it? This is. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. 
And was, was Star Trek <laughs> novels like quite a big thing at the time? Because I, I assume potentially, you know, there may have been some in the 70s kind of gearing up for the motion picture. Or was it quite a new thing that they were starting to get expanded universe sort of material out there? I, it was, uh, I know Memory Prime came out, I believe, the same year as Next Generation started. Because one, one of the ideas yeah. we had pitched uh, had a Klingon on the bridge of a future enterprise. I said, oh, you can't do that. <laughs> and, um, but but Star, yeah, Star Trek was just coming into its golden age with the next generation. And the interesting thing was when we published Memory Prime, uh, Pocket Books was publishing one Star Trek novel every two months. And each one of those paperback novels went on to the New York Times bestseller yeah. list, which was yeah. remarkable. And uh, then we started writing for them, and they started doing an original series uh, novel every two months. And then in the, uh, the middle months, they would do a Next Generation novel. But we, we stuck to the original at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then they, they tried uh, hardcover, and that went extremely well. And we did hardcovers for them as well. Yeah. Yeah, I was about to say, you were mentioning the New York Times bestselling list, which I believe you guys ended up on yourselves. Was that from yes. Star Trek? Yeah. Yes. Uh, with um, uh, uh, Ice... No, Ice no, no, no. Ice oh. Fire was Los Angeles Times. That was LA Times. And Quicksilver, and Quicksilver was, New York, was Times. New York Times. But those ones, they started off like we went to Antarctica because of Star Trek. Because we, we came home one day and... This was just before the turn of the century, and this was, we came home one day and found a catalog, and it was sent by the people behind Slate Magazine that were starting a new, uh, it was Microsoft, they were starting a new adventure one called Mungo Park, and they wanted to take 12 writers and have them each write about an adventure every month, and they sent us a catalog, and it said, where do you want to go in the world? And they had only picked people who had been on the New York Times at least five times mm -hmm. on that list. And we immediately got on the phone. We said, we want to go to Antarctica. And they sent us there. And we wrote, when we wrote Ice Fire, which was the first of a, of a tech, trill, uh, tech, um, tech uh, thriller, it set in Antarctica with terrorists. And uh, we were able to do our research right then, but it was because of Star Trek. Yeah, sort of like, you right, Star Trek, there. yeah. Work. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's the best kind of research trip, getting to go there to yeah. a place like that, so remote as well. Well, and we knew, you know, how often can people go on? They, yeah. it, we were there for three, it was a three and a half week trip, and we made 31 landings, uh, and it was incredible. So how did you, because you mentioned earlier on um, about your first Star Trek book, uh, and just kind of going, oh, you fancied writing a Star Trek book, but how did you actually get that job? Because that seems like to go from kind of writing textbooks, everything like that, although they had a grounding in kind of science, which I thought would be really useful for writing Star Trek, how did you actually leap into that and go like, oh, hi guys, like, you know, we've, we've been writing these textbooks, now I reckon we should write a Star Trek novel. We had been writing textbooks, but Gar had written five horror novels that were published. Ah, uh, yes, of course. I believe Stephen King called you the Tom Clancy of horror. Is that right? <laughs> oh, he did. <laughs> and and then thought that Ice Fire was the best book since uh, Hunt for Red, Red October. Wow. It's an endorsement. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely an endorsement. Yeah. Yeah, Hunt for Red October gets a lot of love on this show, actually. <laughs> I think it was a previous uh, guest, actually, really cited that as an inspiration for. Yeah, one of his yeah. Enterprise episodes. Sadly, it's not enough to do a whole podcast about, but we do love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, so that obviously, that kind of opened the door, did it, to potentially writing a Star Trek novel? 
You had to have had an agent. You had yes. to be a published uh, author. With an agent. And, with an agent. And basically, as I recall, we simply called up yeah. and asked to speak to the Star Trek editor. And did it cool. And uh, said, what does it take to submit? And We uh, sent in three, three well, outlines, I think. Right. Well, they said you had yeah. to submit through an agent, yeah. publish novels. So, And at that time, we had a literary agent. So um, we, I think we wrote... Uh, three proposals. And one was that Klingon trilogy. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and then and Memory Prime was the one they chose. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> it's one of those things where you said you both liked Star Trek beforehand, but would you were you kind of like proper fans before, and would you say you've become bigger fans through being involved in the franchise? Uh, I, I was definitely a proper fan, right. and I was going to the conventions. And then he he brought me along and into this life because I was in nineteenth century literature, <laughs> and then he brought me into it. And one of the first things that happened in our early dating life was we won a contest, and we went down to Los Angeles and went to the cast and crew screening. The, or the tech screening, wasn't it, of uh, The Empire Strikes Back? Yes, well, yeah. ages ago. That's right. And so this is in our very early life. And we had dressed up <laughs> to win this one. We entered a thing and through a radio contest. For the record, I cannot believe she is telling this story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had hair down to my waist, and I was, we sprayed it gold. Gar made us three-fingered silver gloves, and we were first mate... Miss Piggy? Cap Captain Link Hogthrop. Link Hogthrop. And first <laughs> mate Miss Piggy from the uh, Swine Trek. And we won first prize. And I refused. We were dating at the time, and nobody at our, at our publishing company knew that. And they published our picture in the paper. But we were in costume. And, but then they put our names on it, and then the secret was out. <laughs> so you would have got away with it if it wasn't for the damn caption. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So... It, it has been entwined in our life. Yes. And, Judith, do you feel like you've become more of a fan, like, through uh, through Garfield and through being involved with the actual franchise itself? Oh, oh absolutely. And the the uh, especially just the, the whole roots of it being in the original, it, that's classic literature. Mm. With class, those three classic characters, that's straight out of, you know, I have no trouble going from 19th century literature to track. Okay, interesting. And do you think the the fact that you guys were involved in kind of very much real science, hard science, gave you uh, a, a good grounding for writing those kind of stories? That, that's a good question because we we never wrote uh, tech babble, and we we love the idea that it was a look into the future. Even mm -hmm. though it came with with aliens, uh, with makeup, it it still it was a positive look into the future, and and there have been very few series that have done that. And we did try in all the different Star Trek we wrote, um, we did try to make it very science fiction-y in the sense that, you know, it wasn't just technobabble, but there was a, a, um, some sort of grounding to it. We tried to make sense of star dates. We tried to make sense of, uh, you know, what, what was the event horizon of, what, how, how do you contemplate the event horizon of a black hole in a universe where you have warp speed? And that sort of implies all sorts of different uh, types of physics behind what's happening inside a black hole. So that led to uh, our novel Federation, 
which had uh, Kirk's Enterprise and Picard's Enterprise. And it was the 250-year saga. Right, enter the event horizon of a black hole, but it was the, the, the light speed event horizon. And deeper into the black hole, there was a, a warp event horizon. So we had a lot of fun with that one. Yeah, it's a lot of your um, kind of... A- something that kind of binds a lot of your work together actually is going back and sort of look at the time as a whole and almost exploring some of the gaps that existed within there. And, and it was, was the reason why you kind of like got those kind of science, was it because you sort of developed quite a kind of encyclopedic knowledge of like the, the show as a whole through writing oh. the behind the scenes stuff. Do you think that <laughs> you get pigeonholed for that? Yeah, that would, because we're always looking, you know, where, where's the hidden story? Where's the, the thing that's not spoken and that's what, what was around the corner that you, you thought might be there but you didn't see right and those are those are the untold stories and the gaps are fun and when you pick up something and you write novels that are um, based on television series there will be gaps mm-hmm. because we know ourselves from writing TV things are written very fast and uh, and there are a lot of people involved and so things happen that need to be explained and that, that was we enjoyed so much I know that was sort of the reason why Manny Cotto brought us on to Enterprise. Uh, Enterprise. Of course. And uh, it was because yeah. of Federation. And, uh, you know, our agent got a call and Manny asked, you know, have they ever written scripts? We'd written 100 produced scripts at that point, but we'd mm-hmm. never, even even going over and interviewing people there for the, the about the scenes books, uh, behind the background ones, we never told them that we wrote scripts because we didn't want to bother them. Because everybody was always trying to pitch them stories. Mm-hmm. And um, so he brought us in, and the very first one we wrote, The Forge, that opening conversation between uh, Forrest and Saval. And, and, you know, one of the great unexplained mysteries of Star Trek to us at that time was, well, that Earth had an atomic war and became a warp civilization within 100 years. Vulcans had had an atomic war, and it took them 2,000 years. So to us, there's, you know, there's epic stories involved in that. And we got to at least mention that in that conversation. I, I got a personal quite story, actually, about uh, as a sort of 10-year-old uh, getting into Star Trek. So this is be 95. And yeah. um, that was when I was just... It, it, Star Trek was at its peak, and, and I think my fandom, like, I was just lapping up everything I could find. I mean, my, my local library got a copy of The Return. And ah. being... And this is, a, you know, in the south of England, I, I don't know who bought their books in, but I'm very happy they got this. And I'm so happy to have read it because it, it was just basically like it was for, for a young man just trying to get as much Star Trek uh, access as possible, like to be able to see kind of post Star Trek six, but also be a semi sequel to um, Star Trek seven. And, you know, and that those kind of things just really sort of resonated with me. And I remember to this day, like how it connected to the motion picture and, you know, it gave, like, this fan at least quite a lot of excitement just to kind of start drawing the dots, you know? Uh, yeah. Well, I think it's important to ask, how was it writing with William Shatner? Is that something you've oh. done quite a lot now? Well, and, and, you know, he is a fellow Canadian. And uh, uh, and we have continued on with him. It's he's 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 just a phenomenon himself yes his, his latest yeah. his latest great motion picture role of course is phil the plant philodendron phil- <laughs> yeah. he is a philodendron plant that flies a starship and as we were writing that this is uh, for the script aliens ate my homework that roger lay jr uh produced and, and, and eric, eric carnegie, carnegie. yeah and um 
we were adapting uh, Bruce Coville's Aliens Ate My uh, Homework uh, young adult novel, or kid's novel, I guess. And uh, we were writing in lines for Phil, the plant, and realized, gee, this is, we, we had um, sort of toyed with a, a series idea we were developing with Bill, and there was a character in it that he really liked, and um, the, was very similar. And so we, you know, as we, we finished the script and we said, you know, we bet we could get Bill to uh, do the voice for Phil because Phil was uh, the puppeteered in the movie. And he is the pilot. And uh, so Bill said, you know, we told Bill about it. He said, yes. And then the producers said. The minute they heard that, we went from 30 lines for Phil to 90. Yes. <laughs> That's right. And that was great. But yeah. well, we would sit with Bill and try and figure out, you know, what is oh, a plant like? Well, what we were, were figuring out he was, and it, yeah. and it was wonderful to hear him try the different the different voices out and figure out what he would be doing. And and boy, the day he came in to do it, he just nailed it in the in the room, um, and at, at the booth, and it was amazing. It just it's so professional. Yeah. Oh gosh. And, yes. And uh, and it just brought so much fun to it. And we've just finished writing. First one's already been shot, and it's out. And we went to the the rap party uh, this this spring, and for the first one, and we uh, and the studio greenlit the next two scripts, and we we're turning in the third one this before Christmas. Oh, fantastic! Cool. Yeah, we so obviously yeah we spoke to Roger a little while ago, and being able to track yeah. the, uh, the the journey of Ends at My Homework and now the sequels is fantastic. Yes, uh, tremendous fun for that one, um, and it's just it's Star Trek takes you everywhere. We're just thinking this time last year we were. Um, this happens to people who are working in science fiction, but particularly if you have Trek with that positive view, because we ended up being brought in as um, lead uh, inspiring writers to the Imagineers for Disney, and we ended up last fall going to all the theme parks in Orlando, like well, uh, Universal and and uh, Disney, but because they were reimagining Epcot for the 40th anniversary in 2022. And that's what we were brought in for. Yeah, uh, that's an opportunity. That's I fantastic. Mean, that's know, a research trip. This is exactly what we were saying in terms of having a very varied CV. I mean, that's that's absolutely crazy in regards to the kind of well, the, the Disney Imagineering stuff. I mean, how uh, how did that come about? There's just like literally, was it through uh, your Star Trek work? How did they go? Right, you're the guys. Come in. We've got a design because it literally like Shanghai Disney. You guys were like yeah, planning out all yeah. the different rides and everything. Yeah, I know. It's it's amazing, but it all goes through this big community that on one end of the continuum is space, the real space uh, Imagineers, and then uh, the other end is people in the entertainment industry, and we've been involved with both ends. And it was really through that space community that we came to the attention of uh, a Disney Imagineer director. And he's the one that brought us in. As soon as they were cleared to do Shanghai uh, legally, we got a call the next day. And we were in to talk about uh, Adventureland and Adventure Isle, and because it's all story again, mm. and uh, and that's how we got involved in that one. Then they brought us back for a whole park concept later. We we're always working with Disney Asia, and then the, oh, sorry, Epcot, and then Epcot was the latest one. Wow, what was the uh, like day to day work like working for Disney on those? Was it like what? What did it look like? What did it entail? What? What is so fascinating for us, especially as you know, we had heard the stories of how uh, Walt Disney would sit down with his artists and they would create the cartoons. And this is going back into the 30s. 
And the whole idea was you did uh, elements, you did sequence, you did a chase sequence, you did a pie-in-the-face sequence. And all these pictures would go up on the wall around you, and you would keep going over it, and then you would start again, you would go over it. And then at, finally, at some point, you had a consensus over what parts you're going to be keeping. And that's the system, basically, that works today in what the Imagineers call the blue sky phase. And in blue sky, there are no bad ideas. It's just you will. You will, in the sense that. As one of our producers said in a meeting, uh, he said, there are no bad ideas, just bad people. <laughs> Having bad ideas. I, I remember watching the behind the scenes of Snow White where he was, there was bonuses involved if your joke made it into the movie. <laughs> Uh, so it's a very, very good incentive. I think that's it. Like everybody's coming up with gags for for the film, and you know that people would just be encouraged to write and be creative. Oh, and yes. What they... we, and what we found with with Blue Sky was we went in, and this is because we we think of ourselves as world builders. Um, that, mm-hmm. That's kind of science fiction writers we are. And uh, so we would sit down and we would think of what, what the themes were, what what the overall intent was, and then we would create. A concept picture of it and so everything would fit together with it and it would embrace the past lead you through the present that was being remodeled and take you into the future and that's that's what we do in our writing and that's how we approached Epcot and Shanghai and Shanghai we had the most fun for that one because we we sat down and we created a, 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 an inspiration document for them and it looked like a 1935 oh. National Geographic <laughs> and, we and the whole the magazine, the whole magazine, and we embedded all of our concepts inside it as if it, that's what you were encountering there, because it was done like an expeditionary uh, model set around the 30s, and uh, and that's just funny. And you take it in and you inspire them; they are going to go into design build with what they choose to take from you. But mm. you're in there to to open their thoughts. But Disney Shanghai is open now, open in 2016. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So presumably you guys have been over and have you kind of, when you look at it, <laughs> can you see your kind of ideas in there like now fully realized? Well, oh, I yes. think yes. the things always like change when budget gets involved. But, but we are, we are delighted that, you know, for the next 20 years, there'll be little children in Shanghai. Terrified. Terrified because of, what's of our contributions. Yes, of what's inside the mouth. <laughs> That's right. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Uh, but it, it is a uh, it it is tremendous fun to see. But there's real back and forth mm-hmm. between the people that we worked with NASA as we were doing our behind the scenes books for NASA uh, on Mars um, on the Mars missions. Um, and there's real there's real rapport going on between Disney and NASA, so that they come and they look at at how how they handle. Uh, concept thinking, how they handle project management, they go back and forth. Yeah, we, we so mentioned very, to, very compatible. to a NASA friend, hey, we're working with the Disney Imagineers, and he threw out some names, said, oh yeah, we know those guys, well, he knew them too, because the Disney Imagineers will sometimes go over to JPL and sit in on a mission planning phase, yeah. and then D- JPL engineers will sometimes go over to Disney and sit in on a, uh, a build discussion, so they're constantly cross-fertilizing each other. And we found, working with the chief engineer at JPL at the time, mm-hmm. that they have a form of blue sky over there as well, because mm-hmm. we saw that with the asteroid mission, oh, where we sat in on the very first um, sessions. For what and, was going to be the asteroid uh, retrieval yeah. mission. 
So it's um, very, very similar. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to see the, it's kind of a flow without a barrier. And that we put in our book on going to Mars, which we wrote with the chief engineer about the missions to Mars. We wrote that in, and the first thing we started with was a quote from Carl Sagan, who talked about the dance between science and science fiction and how they are continually inspiring each other. Actually, the opening quote of that yeah. book was from Captain Kirk. Oh, well, yeah. <laughs> Risk is our business. Oh, we love that speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, we do. It's absolutely awesome. Like, And this is something we should mention, as you kind of said, you're working with the NASA Space Policy Workshop, which is another amazing thing. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, obviously you've got that basis in kind of actual science fact before everything like that and now brought in with the fiction so i believe this is the same group that james cameron is a part of as well and kind of what what is it you're doing there how do you get involved in that it was back in the first bush administration and and the deputy administrator of nasa Mm -hmm. asked us to join it and star trek fan star trek fan (laughs) and there were about 13 people and we were there representing how do you take um their issues and their dreams and translate them to the public. Mm-hmm. And so we we were part of that group uh, that was at the table. But but you know, New Camp, they were all there. We mm-hmm. were we even had um, the segue. So Dean came. Dean came and was on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, and but it, it that, that was uh, like it was a spitballing thing. They were trying yeah. to come up with. We know what's technologically capable. We know what we want to make possible in the future. Um, how do we how do we get the public involved in this? How do we um, translate our dull engineering uh, papers into something that will excite the public? And um, Star Trek's always been a big part of how they like to look at the future too. Uh-huh. And we, we, what was interesting though was we were sitting there, there were a whole bunch of uh, NASA engineers and, and scientists mm-hmm. there, and uh, to a significant number of them. You know, we were just the Hollywood types, <laughs> and why would anybody ever listen <laughs> to right. us or Jim Cameron or yeah, anybody? that's right, or anybody like that. That's right. right. But you know, that's that's also traditional that connection between mm-hmm. science fiction writers mm-hmm. and dreamers and and the people who are involved in the hard science. And when you think of they brought in people like Ben Bova, etc., when they were looking for how do you uh, deal with scientific waste and particularly nuclear waste in the future. Oh, and Gregory keep, Benford. Yeah, Gregory Benford. And keep people from from going to dangerous sites. What do you do? Will a religious cult form around them? If you, you know, how do you put the How do you warn people 10,000 years ago? Yeah, how do you ago? do that? And they, yeah. they frequently have come out to the science fiction community. Mm-hmm. We, we don't and, want a Beneath the Planet of the Apes situation on our hands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's that's a very interesting thing, isn't it? That essentially it sounds like, from what you're saying, that NASA is saying it's important that the public are excited and invested in what we're doing here, presumably because of kind of funding and everything like that, and kind of where they're going, that they want the public to support it. And now they're kind of trying to go down the road of kind of getting science fiction creators and stuff invested to be saying almost how do we package this to the public? What kind of ideas are they going to be interested in? Give us things to kind of, you know, work on that you think will catch the public imagination. Some style. <laughs> yeah. More how do, how do we communicate what they're working on? Right. Uh, but as fiction, people were always, they're always trying, but always people come up with things like uh, Zubrin. Uh, Zubrin with his idea for Mars, it didn't come out of NASA. 
So uh, there are always people on the outside that have lots of ideas, but as we also know, screenwriters, is execution is what matters. Uh, everyone has ideas, but the, as communicators, they, they look to the science fiction community, I think. Um, but, you know, they're amazingly accessible people, the, the ones who are there. It's humbling when, when you talk to them. And we, we were over there for about eight years talking to them over and over and over through their successes and their failures. And those people are always out in the schools. They're talking. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're tremendous ambassadors for NASA. Yeah, and there, was a, there were a couple of years where there was significant overlap where we would be, you know, in the uh, Star Trek art department one day <laughs> and then over at JPL the next day. Oh. And the guys at Star Trek, of course, all over the wall are photographs from NASA and real spacecraft. And at JPL, it's photographs from Star Trek, and, uh, Battlestar Galactica, things like that. And the guys at, at Star Trek go, "Yo, you know the guys at NASA? Wow, that's so oh. cool!" And then at JPL, you know the guys at Star Trek? That's so cool. Just rock stars in both rooms. I think we realize as well, like this is what um, Elon Musk might need is somebody like to sort of take his ideas and sell them in a different way. I mean, cut out the middleman. Yeah, I'll put a middleman in there. We need. Yeah. Well, now that's something we find very science fiction fans and science fiction people you know if you go back to the old movies of the, the 50s about space travel the the flight to the moon was always the dream of a mad industrialist who was working alone in the desert building it up and then of course it was accomplished by a massive government organization and now it is back to the mad industrialist building his own spaceship yeah it's like Hugo Drax or something like that <laughs> Uh, aside from Star Trek as well, what other kind of early sci-fi influences were there on you uh, in your youth and growing up? Like you, you mentioned, like movies of the fifties. Were there anything between like there and say when Star Wars and Star Trek started kicking off that really like ignited your passion for sci-fi? Well, I would classics would be yeah. In in the yeah. days before VCRs, I lived in my neighborhood. There was a, a, a movie theater that was you know a short walk away. And they would have the classic Saturday afternoon matinees, and uh, you know, two movies for a buck fifty. Yeah. And so as a kid, I was always there, and I think that's when I saw the science fiction films from the fifties and horror films. Um, and uh, you know, for, and I remember my mother telling me, I'm trying to remember how old I was, but she said, she it was a, like a Friday night or a Saturday night, she said, no, no, don't go to bed because there's a movie you should see. Your mother was great. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so it was the 1130 movie and so she made me, she made me stay up <laughs> and it was Forbidden Planet. Amazing. And she thought I would like that and boy was she right. So, uh, that's, yeah. that's sort of like, we, we have a friend uh, Mel Gilden who, he, it's his firm belief that Forbidden Planet is the actual first pilot for Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I can see that definitely. Like, I mean, it's 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 a great great movie, and I think it still stands up. I think it touches into so mm. much sci-fi uh, content going forward. No matter no yeah. what it is, if you trace back, it kind of all starts there. Lost in Space yeah. as well, very much so. And I think you know, yeah, for yeah. Forbidden Planet, my favorite episode of the original series do feel like visits to the planet in uh, Forbidden Planet it just where you, you are aware it's kind of a set but it's also just has such an atmosphere about it of like mystery yeah. and uh, and you, you can you just enjoy it beyond what you can actually see there like you clearly it's not like fooling anybody but it's just something that you just get lost in the story 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Gosh, yes. Yeah. yeah. And also the sense, I remember watching the first few episodes of Star Trek that I saw, just the sense that there's a whole organization there. There's Starfleet. Mm-hmm. And Forbidden Planet had that too, where this was a military command structure in the uh, spacecraft. And uh, just that sense that, and that's and what course, Star Trek brought, you know. Of the, course, that came out of Gene Roddenberry and his own military background. Yes. Yeah. 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 A lot of the guys on the original yeah. Star Trek had come out of the military. Yeah. Well, I think kind of it's that thing, isn't it? Most of that that's that odd time where pretty much kind of all the guys kind of working in that kind of industry would have would have had their time in the armed forces kind of thing. They all come from that generation where they all had that experience. Uh, yeah. It kind yeah. Of, it's, it's a completely it, it kind of makes for a very different generation of kind of well, men in particular. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Roddenberry didn't do his own Sea Corps. I think he didn't, he didn't follow uh, um, the other. What's his name? Yeah. Hubbard. Like you know, I think I think I think Elon did say to Gene, didn't he? That you know you with Star Trek you could have had your own cult, but you just you didn't know what you're doing with it. <laughs> Look what you could have had. Yeah. <laughs> well, some would, some would say. I think to some people it probably is a cult. Like, like yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, talking about that militaristic side, of course, kind of takes us back to Enterprise in the sense of you know I think if you watch Star Trek Enterprise, that's the one where you can link it most to the kind of an existing military kind of system because it's so much closer. Kind of like yeah. to where we are now. Um, you actually wrote uh, an episode, United, um, for Enterprise, which, funnily enough, I've got a bit of a connection with. But before we did the podcast, randomly, I was actually in a Star Trek fan film as an actor um, huh? a couple of years ago. And the guy who directed that fan film is a big Star Trek fan. And the episode he demanded that I watch for research before I played uh, a Romulan oh, no. uh, in that was was United. United. I actually watched it. Yeah, the night before we shot, he was like, "Right, sat me down." I was like, "Right, you've got to watch this before we go and watch uh, watch United and watch the episode." I think just before then as well. Um, but I knew you guys what uh, wrote United, so that was my first kind of enter proper Enterprise experience there. <laughs> <laughs> we're honored <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I really uh, enjoy it especially it's interesting I'll find it very interesting now because now I'm kind of watching Enterprise properly more from the start and I'm gradually getting towards there because I'm in like season two at the moment and uh, I know that's coming I'll be really interested to watch it again now within context so I know what's actually going on this time like uh, <laughs> Sometimes it's hard not to know what's going on. Yeah, 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 no, very, very true. Like, uh, it's harder in Enterprise season four, particularly because I I think most of four out of five of your episodes were all all kind of part one of three or two part two of two. You know, so you were either beginning or finishing like arcs, and I think that Mm -hmm. didn't lend itself to kind of like the episode dropping in, but. In retrospect, it's it's been very like well thought of, hasn't it? That 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 full season, it was really going somewhere. It it yeah. Well, under Manny, Manny was terrific to work for, and and he definitely had uh, an arc in mind, and was hoping that it, it might go another year because he had more to do. But um, yeah, we we were really privileged to be part of that, and that was that was a lot of fun for us. Had it gone another year, 
he was, he was determined to bring Shran onto the bridge of yeah, the Enterprise. Yeah, which would have been wonderful. <laughs> yeah, that would have been awesome, actually, because I, yeah, I am really enjoying his character, kind of watching oh, yeah. it. Certainly, his episodes are always a kind of highlight, right from the beginning yeah, with yeah. the the Andorian incident in uh, yeah. season one. I think was the first episode I watched um, when yeah. I was watching it from the start, where I went, "Oh, I'm kind of hooked in now. This is really, this is really cool and different." With the kind of revelation of the the Vulcans not actually yeah. being whiter than white. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeffrey, Jeffrey was great. I know that's what got us too when yeah. uh, when Enterprise started and we, we watched the first episode and uh, we just felt that was a brilliant uh, concept in that a hundred years earlier the Vulcans weren't our friends mm, mm. And, and that told it us there was going to be a great story. It gave you forward. somewhere to go with them. And it made perfect sense yeah. because, you know, the original series is the Klingons aren't our friends, but in the next generation, you could see the the, the winds of change. And uh, the whole message of Star Trek is, you know, there are no enemies. They're just people you have to understand. Mm. When you understand them, there's no need for conflict. So um, the, the idea of Vulcans being unfriendly and then the scene with um archer running across that frozen roof oh, Gargon, with, a, Gar- with a blaster in both hands <laughs> they have me there <laughs> yeah that's a very interesting idea actually that's very true in the sense that that happens again and again in star trek doesn't it where a prior enemy becomes an ally uh, like yeah, with with yeah. the Klingons, with the Borg, even with Seven of Nine, everything like that. Ferengi, yeah, yeah, the Ferengi. You always feel like an old bad guy is about to turn up on the bridge at some point, as now a member of the kind of Starfleet and the Federation. Yes, yes. Yeah. Then, then you need a new villain. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Still haven't seen any Romulans in Starfleet. <laughs> yeah, that's everywhere. Is, is there any Romulans who turn up on the bridge or anything like that? That hasn't happened, has it? Right. We had them in. Um, no, because remember, yeah, I, we will not mention a name. But when we were at Enterprise, a writer pitched the, the pitching uh-huh. stories to us and yeah. pitched us this story. And we're sitting there on the edge of our seats. This is great. Where uh, Archer and Trip are captured by the Romulans, and uh, you know they're put into a prison and they have to escape from a Romulan prison. And uh, so we're thinking, oh, great, what's the twist? What's the twist? And then he tells us the story, and they escape. And, and we looked at him, we said, you realize that until uh, the original series, no one had ever seen Romulan. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the guy had not done his research. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because that kind of like, uh, that's why people kind of have a bit of a go at the uh, the Borg episode of Enterprise, isn't it? In the sense of they're going, oh, have they met them there and everything like that. Although I kind of thought yeah. when I watched that, they kind of, they, they write around it to be like, give a reason <laughs> why, sort of. Good yeah. phrase, yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like I did, uh, <laughs> I did enjoy it. But you, you went really kind of like straight in as kind of story editors and producers at Enterprise when you came into season four. So I sense you probably had like a real feel of ownership, kind of you know, with that season. You were heavily involved. You weren't just kind of writers for hire. Well, Manny kind of separated it out so you got to own your episode. Yeah, and uh, and that's kind of the way he worked, so that uh, there weren't. Very many of us on it at that point, and um, and really that's why we've been brought on uh, was because we for history. Well, and that we we were already up to speed. 
and, and, you work, and, and he knows and, you work best as a team that you know oh, yeah. you know if you haven't got compare notes with the people who wrote part one you know that would actually mess with your dynamic would it well, well that was an interesting experience um, uh, it's it's a bit yeah a couple of times we would we would go and man, this forge, is where we did the first one yeah for the forge yeah. we did the first one so that was great united was a middle and united was a middle but for united that's where we went back to manny and said you know if you could alter something in this first episode that would help us out in our episode and uh and, and then they, they picked something from our and united took something from our our middle one and put it in the first one so that that can happen in a in a trilogy yeah Things shift around. Yeah, shift around. But th that whole idea of doing the arcs of the doubles and the triples, uh, that was Manny. Yeah. And that was a great way to hit really big themes so that you could explore them over more than one episode. And the thought was, too, that so you, if you build a remarkably big set or something you special, could, yeah. you know, for also, one episode, yeah. you could use it yeah. in all three, and that rarely worked out. And well, after we did The Forge, and they gave us, um, they we uh, did Observer Effect, uh, and Observer Effect, I think, how much did we save them? We saved them several hundred thousand dollars. Five hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> probably not that much. Yeah, because, but, but, you know, you just, you're clever, and, he's, and it's fun, it's a challenge. Yeah. So, well, for uh, that one specifically, yeah. they, they said they they needed an episode now to to save the uh, budget, and so no guest stars, no big special effects, and uh, then and I think it was and Manny said and we often find in cases like this that having the <laughs> crew possessed. <laughs> so that's all we had to say, and yeah. then and, we did, and 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 they did a terrific job on it. The actors were wonderful on it. Yeah. So all that um, we. We really enjoyed our, our time. That was it was a treat because we also knew Mike and Denise Akuda uh, before that because we'd done a lot of uh, the books about mm -hmm. about Trek mm -hmm. uh, and um, on Next Gen and mm -hmm. on Deep making of Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. And well, we knew practically everybody because we had interviewed we them, them all. On, but we met Mike and Denise on on making of Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so when the day we went in, we were writers on it now. That was just so fun because we got on. We'd been brought on three or four months in. We were they were already on episode six and writing, and shooting three. Mm -hmm. And um, we came in in August and we were working within a day of being brought on set. But we went down and the security guy came forward and hugged us because he knew our material. <laughs> that, that was that was a definitely homey. That's yeah, when yeah. Mike Sussman took us down to look at the shooting of home. Yeah. And for Mike and Denise, who were real friends already by that point. We only saw them three times that year, yeah. uh, and we were actually working in the same building. Yes, we were so used to, we had with Mike and Denise, we would never see them while they were in production. We would yeah. only see them on hiatus or holidays. And then we thought, oh, we're going to be working on the same show. We'll see each other all the time, and three yeah. times. And now, of course, they're they're working with um, for Roger and Eric on mm -hmm. Aliens at My oh. Hallmark. So that uh, the, a lot of the starship design and such of that comes from Mike. Yep. And the graphics as well, and so it, that's with Bill there. There's a Star Trek connection again. Yeah, it's a real. Seems like uh, yeah. I mean, I remember when we spoke to Roger because we interviewed him as well um, about Aliens, uh, Ate My Homework. It did seem like a big kind of big Star Trek reunion essentially. <laughs> so just very, and then of course Roger done all the uh, value added material, uh, yes, etc. Yes, so I mean, it really. It, uh, fans are always hoping that the cast of a picture are friends in real life, 
but they may not realize that many of the people behind the scenes form yeah. a huge community and stay friends forever. Mm, mm, which is really so. I mean, definitely, I think as we've discovered talking to various different people, the trek itself does seem to create a, a real uniter. Yeah. yeah, 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 very yeah. much so. A real yes. community around it. I suppose it is that thing of like you are all linked by uh, this huge kind of franchise. And I suppose also mm-hmm. through things like conventions yeah. and stuff like that, you're all kind of finding each other as well. We we don't go to many of the conventions, oh, okay. but. Um, we're, well, no, we're more like writing hermits. <laughs> but, but uh, you're dressing up days are over. Was... Like they ended in 1980. <laughs> There's many ways, and the science fiction community has always stayed in touch through either fan conventions or professional conventions, and so the science fiction community exists independently too, especially for writers. Now, on Enterprise, you wrote uh, the episode Terror Prime, um, which yeah. was the yeah. penultimate episode, ended up being the penultimate episode of the entire series. Yeah. Now, yeah. Right. I, I know from what I've, from what I've read, I haven't, I haven't seen it as yet, uh, but a lot of fans uh, seem to very much kind of consider that the real finale, as it were, just because these are the voyages seem to be this kind of epilogue kappa kind of like set apart from the rest whereas Terra Prime is kind of like wrapping up that story of what's ever's been going on that season like and how how does that feel in the sense of almost you kind of put the kind of full stop on kind of the main story as it were well but Manny Manny Cotto put the full stop on it because that was the end of his involvement with mm. it at that point we all knew it wasn't coming back right um and and so it's it's interesting when you see all these long running series how they choose to end them, and uh, and then by Rick and Brandon coming in, it was the end of their involvement with Trek as well, which had gone on a long time. Yeah, it was and a great so note. It was a great note for, for their era. For their era, and so that, uh, but it was odd. Uh, it and was that the one where we got dressed up? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No. 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 Uh, oh, no. I think you guys are in the finale. Yes, and I'm in I'm in a Gates McFadden outfit. <laughs> I believe. Yes, since we're up there. And and uh, oh yes, that's right, Manny was close to us, wasn't he? He was an admiral. He was an admiral, yes. I was only a captain. You were only a captain. And and they popped us all into this this, this big scene where we were looking down at um, Jonathan Frakes. Jonathan Frakes was was emoting down on that on this in the scene in front of us. But it was very funny going into makeup and, and wardrobe. And sitting there with, and the other writers were all with us too. So it, 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 it who knew? Certainly, this again continued to amaze my brother. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's funny. Well, you, all, you all stayed in rank as well, which is quite funny. <laughs> yes, and yes, that's right. And it was it was nice because um, they brought Majel in. Yeah, and she addressed us all because it was that the last was day of filming. Yeah, so that they got a chance. Yeah. They did have a chance to do these sort of grace note things, mm-hmm. and and that that was lovely. That was lovely. It was the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. But of course, Star Trek didn't end because Star Trek has always been evergreen. It seems mm-hmm. and has just gone on and on and on, and each each reinvention matches its time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to be the franchise seems to be in like a total purple patch at the moment with uh, Discovery <laughs> kind of on and the new Picard show suddenly green lit and more and movies. Yeah. Yes, and Sir Patrick involved, and yeah. How do you are you fans of Discovery? Like, how do you feel about where the franchise is right now? 
we're just we're thrilled that the franchise is continuing. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a miracle. You know, is it how it 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 just keeps going? It just keeps going. But it, it, we've always felt that they each each series reflects the time and mm-hmm. the, the people making it of their of that particular era. Absolutely. And so they each have a signature feel, and uh, we were just happy enough to belong to one of them. Mm-hmm. I'm really fascinated to see what they're going to be doing with uh, the new Picard series yeah. because yeah. The, the evolution of a character yeah. is always fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, he had, he had seven years, all those movies. When, what context are they going to put him into? They're yeah. not going to do a flashback. It's, it's going to be great storytelling. It's, it's interesting. Yeah, first time since, like, 2002, we're going to see sort of what happens beyond the end of Voyager, which is, like, you know, uncharted territory. We've had a lot of prequel-heavy yeah. stuff for a long while. It's almost actually been the last 15 years of Trek has been prequels. And yes. so, yeah, we're finally going to be in our uncharted territory again, I think. It's uh, exciting. And it's always been a case where characters can carry on, so the original cast being able to come mm-hmm. back for the movies and carry on from the series work, and then the next-gen movies, and this is the case of a character coming back again, but in TV form, to still, like you say, have that long-form character uh, uh, evolution yeah. going on. It's a first well, movie, right? really, yeah. We're just waiting for Infinity Wars in track. We're <laughs> <laughs> coming up to the same number of characters. Yeah, we figured the Star Trek universe is just about ready for it. It was interesting because we heard like uh, Rick Berman did kind of move kind of like a, a, a Avengers style Star Trek <laughs> Eleven, like sort of in the middle. Oh. So I think I don't know if you were. Oh, really? Do you that, think that's true that TNG DS Nine all together? That's news to us. Oh, okay. So do you do you think maybe that's just kind of rumor, wishful thinking? Well, I'll tell you, one time we talked with Rick Berman, and uh, and he said, this is pre-Enterprise, and I forget what we were discussing, but he said, well, you know, the rumor I've heard is da-da-da-da-da, and we looked at him and he said, hold it, you're at the top, and you have to listen to rumors too? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe he was trying to create water cooler chat at the time, like, oh, yeah, guys, yeah. you heard about this new Star Trek movie? He's just on the message boards, like, guys, any, any clues? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, talking about that in terms of going into the future with Star Trek, you've written so many Star Trek novels. Is that um, something you've ever explored in the novels that you've written, kind of going beyond Nemesis, kind of in the timeline? Well, we did that actually in Federation, where we jumped ahead in unspecified number of decades or perhaps centuries uh, for the where uh, Kirk is in rapport with the Guardian of Forever, and he just has that glimpse of the far future of the Federation. And, um, and the fascinating thing is, when we first proposed Federation to the publishers, uh, and we, we always would deliver a uh, pretty detailed outline, that last chapter of Federation, uh, the far future, is, I think, with only two words changed, exactly what we wrote in our original presentation. The story changed drastically. We ended up not writing the novel we proposed, but a slightly different one, you know, seven years after we proposed it. But that that piece of writing, about a page and a half, uh, is right from our original uh, presentation. Oh, okay, so you have got... It will be interesting to see where they do go with it and how it kind of right. compares your own ideas and stuff like that, because I suppose that must always be a thing... Now, when you're watching the uh, any kind of 
new stuff that they produce. You're watching it half as a fan, presumably, and half as someone who is a creator who's worked in Star Trek Whoa. before. <laughs> I, I think no, we watch just, as fans. Where we yes, we step aside. It's giant. Yeah. It's a giant. Uh, it's it just it has gone beyond. It's a community effort. <laughs> Was yeah, it like a kind of always a thing about canon and non-canon kind of that discussions were taking place in the late '80s? There are things you can't do, things you can do if you want it to be. Were, were, were people kind of really concerned about those things, contradicting it, other aspects? It, 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 it waxed and waned about what they were concerned about, and it generally mm-hmm. would be like they didn't want to overlap with the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they or, didn't want to... Uh, uh, they, they didn't want to directly contradict canon, but I know, no. you know, and some things just slipped through. I, in Observer Effect, nobody has commented on that, but there, there is a break in continuity. There is a canonical error in that <laughs> that we saw, but a year later we realized, oh my oh gosh, my gosh yes. and, uh, and we've never explained what it is, but nobody else has caught it, but it's a big one. Is this the real reason why you don't go to conventions? Because you know some nerdy fan is going to be there being like, hey, what uh, about in this episode? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, it's because we're always writing. Yes. Uh, okay, well, yeah, it's not working. yeah, it does sound like you are kind of always knee-deep in car projects. I mean, you were talking about Epcot, so how are the car 40th anniversary uh, celebrations coming together for that? Uh, well, now they went into design build in January of uh, this year, and so we will now be just fans going to look and see what survived. Yes, but the, the, the logistics there. of yeah. rebuilding a wow. park while keeping it well, open it's, this is, is amazing. This is, it's different. It's sort of like Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. You know, where there's the old and the new and the present all mixed up together. So it, it's going to be pretty interesting. It's going to be actually spectacular. Hey, one thing we do yeah. want to mention that we've yeah, been working we're on and very excited about. local for you guys. Yeah. Oh. If you know Alex Jordan, Alexander yeah. Gordon Smith's uh, Escape from Furnace series. Uh, it's uh, sort of a dystopian London. With oh, right, okay. The young locked up. It's like privilege. And, Shoot, uh, shooting in London as well, is it? Or yeah, well, this is we've written the script and it's called Furnace, right? And uh, and it's of the it's the no, it's our adaptation of the first book in Alex's uh, uh, series, Escape from Furnace, and it's gone to it has been taken and Roger and Eric are both uh, producers on it, I think, yeah. and uh, it has gone to Sean Reddick, uh, producer of Get Out. Oh and wow! Fantastic. The Black Klansman and uh, Will Packer, so that they are now looking for their director for it, and that um, we just loved his we loved his books. And um, if you're going to read his books, you have to put on a seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, definitely be checking out. That that sounds yeah. really really interesting. I mean, but I mean, it's funny that you say that about something you're currently working on because of course uh, I actually read earlier on a uh, Screen Daily article literally from just a couple of days ago about you guys also adapting Andre Norton's uh, novel oh. Galactic Derelict is that right? Yes that's, yes. yes that's right it's from her Time Traders series and she was the first Grandmaster female Grandmaster and she beat uh, Asimov well it didn't beat well the thing is she was she was a Grandmaster for science fiction before Clark or Asimov or or uh, Bradbury. Uh, Bradbury, and 23 years before Ursula K. Le Guin. But she was called, she was Alice Mary, and changed her name to Andre Norton, so because her publisher felt that young men wouldn't read her novels otherwise. So when I started reading her as as a young man, I guess, as a kid, 
Um, I, it's funny, I knew she was a woman. And I can't remember how I knew that. But anyway, she was, when you're talking about early influences, certainly Andre Norton. And she influenced, um, there's actually, um, it's gone on record, uh, George R. R. Martin said it influenced him in writing uh, Game of Thrones. Just She's just amazing. She's sort of like Alfred Bester. She just throws out ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, So galactic derelict. She's, got, she's 90 million books in print. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, or, so, yes, in print for that. And Galactic Derelict is is this tremendous project, which is that you uh, learn about today through going 10,000 years into the past to find out that the future has already visited us. And it's a fantastic series, and we've done a um, a television format for this one Mm -hmm. that is out right now. I think it went to Cannes, and it's with Myriad. And so we're really looking forward to it, because Patrick Lussier is the director of it, and he was with uh, Terminator Genesis. Yeah, he was um, the writer of Terminator Genesis, wasn't he? Yeah, yes. Yeah. And a great guy. It's funny, working at, in, in the novel, uh, Galactic Derelict, Andre Norton really doesn't describe how time travel works or even what the device looks like, other than saying it's a disc. And so we had a wonderful session with Patrick. We were trying to work out what's a different way of presenting what this looks like. And he came up with this really scary, wonderful thing that we then wrote up as best we could in scientific terms. Uh, it'll be spectacular when we get to film it. But, um, and also for the, the two alien species involved, uh, it was really great. We worked with the folks from Pixamundo. Oh, and they're, they're so doing special effects work for Star Trek Discovery and Game of Thrones. They won an Oscar, a whole bunch of Emmys. And uh, they are huge science fiction fans. And the aliens that they sort of brought to life are just tremendous. Because now the TV is now like feature film like scale, like isn't it? Exactly. And I think it's the right time to bring something like this and and do it justice in terms of you're not Mm. paring it down to two hours, you know, and cutting out what I mean. If there is an existing fan base as well, there's never been a better time to bring it to the mini series on TV. Like, so yeah, that's that's exciting that you can actually sort of bring in those special effects hours as well, especially to, coming from source material as well. Yeah, you want to get it all in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and speaking of source material, too, Andre Norton, we've also been working with the estate on two of our other major properties, and one of them is Witchworld, which was an enormous series, and I think that would be the one that would have inspired Game of Thrones. Yes, wow. um, and and that one, she's just so ahead of her her time. Fully a third of the cast is Asian. It's it's a, it's an amazing series, and we did a feature for that, and mm-hmm. also a television format for it. And that one is in development and just looking for its home at the moment. And also the science fiction version of Beastmaster, not the sword and sandal, because mm-hmm. uh, her book is um, an elite Navajo commando in the future with genetically engineered animals. You know, so it's it's completely different from what people remember from the '80s show. And the 80s show, which is really funny, is that Gar and I were over in uh, Australia on site. How about for the 2001 show? 2001 show, yeah, Yeah, for the the 2001 show. We were in Australia, and uh, we were doing uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World. uh, Oh, yes, yes. We were watching producers of, but it was shared as a movie world on the Gold Coast. And... uh, we shared we could look out and we could see them working with the goat and with the little <laughs> the and baby lions. And the baby lions which we went out and held which are remarkably heavy and very hot <laughs> and, and growled at our head writer and uh, but 
that it was shooting at the same time. Uh, and so that was our first connection with, with Beastmaster. But um, is all of those are in the Andre Norton properties, which are they're amazing. She was an amazing storyteller. That's amazing. So you guys are the go-to guys for Andre Norton adaptations. You really uh, nailed in there. We like we like we like book adaptations. We've yeah. done a bunch. We've done, a bunch. Um, we've done Jerry Purnell's uh, Janice series. Janice series as a feature as well. We've done uh, Dragon Riders twice. Yes. We and McCaffrey's. We did it once as a television series. For developed it. Yeah. Uh, wrote the two-hour pilot, and McCaffrey was alive then. It was we were just corresponding tremendous. with her. She was great. And says, well, what about this? And she says, why don't we just kill them? <laughs> <laughs> she, she, uh, was, she was terrific. So um, very inclusive. In that. Yeah. And then uh, more recently, uh, we then used some of those. We, we wrote a feature for Dragon Riders, um, which is just lovely because television several years ago, we could get as much as three dragons in the air at the same time. <laughs> and for the feature, it was, oh, go for it. So for the big climactic end, you know, there are 2,000 dragons in the air, which is wonderful. Wow, this whole, <laughs> this whole work ethic of yours is blowing my mind. I'm very, very There's a lot going on. That's yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds like... There are two of us. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is the interesting thing in terms of, obviously, you didn't, as you say, Garfield, you had a career writing beforehand, uh, before you met Judith and everything like that, but now that you work as a uh, writing team, uh, I presume that's it for you. You'd always work together. You wouldn't consider writing oh, yeah. projects outside of each other now. Goodness, no. No. No, it took us about three years of working together... Uh, to develop a third voice so that it wasn't the voice that Gar had in his books and it wasn't the one that I had in language arts um, before. It's a different voice. Mm. And it's very funny when people go and they'll say, oh, we think we know what you wrote and what Gar wrote. You know, it's just, and, it's, and it is very funny. And we just say, we write every other word. So uh, it is, but it, it's, it's hand in glove, but we don't think alike. So it makes it more interesting. We turned in one novel to our publishers, Novel Search, and uh, we sent in the manuscript and the publisher, the editor, like getting it as a Word document. And uh, so we emailed the Word document, and about 10 minutes later, we get this panic phone call from the editor's secretary assistant, and she doesn't know what to do because we were supposed to turn in like a three, and the format that the publisher liked, a 300-page manuscript. And the manuscript we sent had 1,400 pages in it. <laughs> and she couldn't make sense of it. And what had happened was she had somehow triggered show changes on the document. <laughs> and, and there was not one. Every once in a while, we looked at it. You know, we told her, well, turn off show changes. So it goes back to 300 pages. But we looked at the 1,400-page version of it. And every once in a while, you would see like half a sentence in black, which meant... <laughs> It was, it was original, original. <laughs> and everything else was red, green, blue, and it had just been rewritten so many times, we couldn't tell what each of us had written. No, no, and that's because it goes into that third voice, too. And so, I mean, that's an interesting one, being a husband and wife uh, writing team. I mean, do you ever find you have creative differences kind of between oh. each other, and then how oh, do you, how do you deal with that? Time. We fight all, all the time. The time. <laughs> <laughs> so rock, paper, scissors, or...? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the last hand on it wins. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, what one thing me and Matt really wanted to ask about because we are actually big fans of this show yeah. is that you guys wrote episodes for Batman the Animated Series. Oh, uh, we're, we're, oh we love that. We're really big fans of of that show. Um, so we just wanted to know what that was like and how that came well, about. We, we were so honored. What was it? I was just. It was a while back, but they put in. The ten best. Oh, it was when, in, in the when, LA Times when Superman it. versus Batman came out, and they they published uh, the entertainment page published uh, in the paper the ten best ways that that his parents had been killed. Yes, because of course it's always <laughs> been killed. And we're going through, and we start with number ten. So I'm reading out what's number ten, then we go nine, eight, seven. Yeah, we were number two. Wow. We were number two for Dreams in Darkness, yeah. and it was on. And then they said, "Is and unfortunately, the first one we'd have to say was inspired by Dreams in Darkness." It's <laughs> so. amazing, wow. yeah, yeah, and that's so cool because I mean, it's such an iconic animated series. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I was uh, reading because I did actually used to watch when I um, was a kid, Phantom Twenty Forty, which you yeah. know, yes. uh, obviously. Oh, oh, um, oh me. Yeah, heavily yeah. involved in as well, and I, I believe that both it was kind of that and Batman the Animated Series that was credited with kind of bringing uh, voice actors who were kind of proper serious dramatic actors rather than just casting normal kind of cartoon voiceover artists for roles. It yeah, was the, amazing to go when we went to the um, the recording sessions for uh, Phantom and for yeah. Phantom Twenty Forty. It was just amazing to see. The, the people, Ron Perlman turning up, Margot Kidder, uh, Mark Paul Hamill. Williams, Mark Hamill, uh, Debbie, Debbie Harry. Debbie Harry. <laughs> I mean, it, it was, you couldn't believe you were looking at this assemblage of people. Nothing. And then and then the voice director, the, the director would then, he, he'd have to, he treated them like he'd, he said, like a kindergarten class. Because <laughs> he said, if they, you have to, you have to establish control over them immediately or they would just go crazy. Like a pack of, <laughs> like, like a wild animals. Yes. Yeah. So, and so he would, he would, he didn't care who he was talking to. He would be stern. For the, for the casting for that. And also the earlier uh, show, flush, we flush. were, well, no, the earlier oh, show, oh, um, uh, Prince Valiant. Prince Valiant. The, yes. We did and that Prince was, uh, David Corbett was the executive producer. He had a tremendous ear for, uh, for talent, for uh, voice talent. Mm -hmm. It, tremendous. His casting was just yeah. uh, tremendous. It was wonderful. For for uh, Batman, the animated series, that was... You know, we were brought in by Michael Reeves. Michael Reeves. Yeah. And it was a true Hollywood experience. It was so great because... You have a story. Michael called yeah. us up because I had written a short story for The Further Adventures of the Joker. And it was... Uh, those were Batman short stories uh, that had to feature the Joker. Those were Warners, I think. Uh, Bantam. Bantam, Bantam. And it was it was trading off the success of the um, Tim Burton Batman movie. So um, they had done the further adventures of the Batman and then further adventures of the Joker. And I had written a story which was very stylish, if I say so. And it was um, it all had to do with Batman being locked up in Arkham Asylum and uh, sort of a confrontation with the Joker. And Michael Reeves called me up. He was uh, a story editor on Batman the Animated Series. And he said, listen, we all love your story. How about two of you come in and adapt it for the animated series? And we said, why, that was wonderful. And of course, by the time we'd finished adapting it and responding to the notes, the only thing that <laughs> resembled that story was that Batman was in Arkham Asylum. But but we got we got to write a new story, which was even nicer. Yeah. But the funny part was, too, was we ran into standards and practices. 
Oh yes, on that one. and um, in the way in which his parents were killed. Yes, that that the uh, the series was always butting up against broadcast standards and practices. Yeah, because so right, yeah, yeah. that's saying yeah. something. Because how dark that show even is now. Yeah, yeah. how it did come out. But yeah, we, and we, we, if we, someone fell off a bridge, you saw them walking out of the water. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, uh, we, we had the distinction of not just getting notes from broadcast standards and practices, but when the, uh, when the producers turned in the first storyboard breakdown of the episode, the entire episode was rejected. It was banned. And wow. it was specifically yeah. Too hot for TV. <laughs> it, was, it was too... too it was Too horrific. It was the death yeah, of his parents. parents, and so the producer uh, said that, uh, "Well, listen, we'll we'll fix it in the storyboards." And they dropped out a bunch of dialogue, and they did a very surreal version. It's one the the barrel of the gun. It's the alley, and it lifts up, and the blood stripping out of it. And it's just magnificent. <laughs> just better than anything. But because there was no dialogue about no and don't That's shoot right, and that. Broadcast standards and practices somehow missed out on what was going on. (laughs) We got it through. Uh, there's an excellent book I don't know whether you've ever seen it called Batman Animated by Chip Kidd um, which in there it's kind of a massive kind of art book all about Batman the Animated Ooh, Series oh, oh, really? yeah it's, it's fantastic like, I hugely recommend it um, yeah. but in there there is a piece of artwork which is from the animators of Batman the Animated Series where they basically because as Matt said they were always coming up against these kind of standards and everything like that it's a piece of artwork that depicts Batman and the Joker kind of fighting but it, they, the idea is is to get every single thing that the standards uh, board have we a have problem with within one picture yeah. so they've kind of yeah. got guns and blood and drugs and sex <laughs> and all kinds of things in one one picture <laughs> Broken glass. Broken glass. Yes, yeah, they're coming through. They're literally bro- coming through broke a uh, glass window with loads yeah. of shards of glass. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh boy, fun. But I mean, uh, yeah, no, that's that's a really amazing thing to have been part of that kind of show because it is yeah. just like and awesome as well in terms of pointing out Mark Hamill. Uh, in terms of being in Phantom 2040 as well, I mean, because he really mm-hmm. got a second career there as a kind of voiceover artist. Uh, I mean, he's just for me, he's the definitive Joker. Yeah, he's he's he was great. He yeah. was just great. Yeah. And yeah. then yeah, Phantom yeah. 2040, Jack, Doctor Jack. Yeah, the doctor's in. The doctor. The is doctor in. is in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I do. It's funny. I actually randomly watched the title sequence today on uh, YouTube. Brought back real memories because I, I do remember watching it uh, as a kid on uh, TV. Um, and funny enough, it's it's one of those things. Of course, it came out the same year as the Billy Zane uh, movie. And mm-hmm. y- you guys do yeah. seem to have a weird kind of like uh, connection with films coming out and then writing kind of an animated. Uh, spin-off of the time with uh, Van Helsing as well. You wrote uh, Van Helsing London Assignment, which is a really weird one because it comes from this odd little era that kind of seemed to appear around the mid-noughties of these official animated times. They did ones for the Hellboy films uh, with Ron Perlman and they did Animatrix. And because this is is legit, it's got Hugh Jackman actually doing the voice of Van Helsing everything. Like, how, how did it come out? That must have felt really uh, crazy to be involved with. Well, that was really fun. When we went in, when they made us to even look at the, the film, we had to sign a 17-page disclosure. Yes. Uh, non-disclosure. Non-disclosure one on it. And, <laughs> and they paid us for the And they the paid us for the pitch. You know, because they said they were taking pitches, and we went in and we gave them three. 
you're only supposed to give them one. And somehow we, we got picked, and then we, we pitched it up the up the chain. Yeah. And the next time we, we combined two of them. Yeah. And the next time the last one had all three, and that's that's the one that did it. But we particularly like swinging Queen Victoria. <laughs> that's right. But this this is how crazy it was that um, we we you know they locked us in a room. We read the script, yeah. and the script was really wonderful. And unfortunately, the movie didn't live up to it. <laughs> but the um, and you know that we saw glimpsed a couple of the sets, uh, and then. Um, they said, okay, uh, you've got the job, uh, and we want this, this to be, and I think it was something like 34 minutes yeah. long. And we sat there for a moment, we thought, well, hold it, that doesn't correspond to like an Anything. hour special with commercials. And, and it was such an odd number. Usually it's, you know, 22 or 44, but why 34? And they said, because with the schedule we have, that's as much animation as we can produce. <laughs> <laughs> so we would like 44 but we have enough time for 34 yeah. so yeah, yeah. do what you can <laughs> that's right so but that, yeah that was that was a lot of fun and We're particularly uh, proud of the beef eaters of the dead as beef well. eaters of the dead yes, yes. well yeah i mean especially as like looking at reviews and that it would seem that now that that is more fondly remembered than the actual film so like uh <laughs> I think maybe the reason they made you sign such a long, long disclosure is because you couldn't tell anyone about what the horrors that you'd seen. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, oh, dear. Yeah. But, you know, this is this is why, you know, like, if you want to have fun, become a writer. Because yeah, no, I'm sure. they'll, they'll let you into anything if you're a writer. That was when we were doing the making of Deep Space Nine. Oh, yeah. We, we went over reporter, and we went, we decided to do it as if... It would be something that a writer would would be interested in, and so we shadowed every aspect of the production. And after a while, they just forgot we were they, they for, we were for the first two weeks we were there. We had to phone a publicist and set a time, and the publicist would, would escort us. us around. And after about two weeks, we had gotten enough people's phone numbers that we ignored the publicist, and we just started you know phoning so so. Hey, could you give us a pass? And then, and Rick Berman was incredible. He he opened up everything. He told everybody, yeah, listen to these guys, answer their questions. And um, so we just became shadows on the wall. And uh, that was like Until going the, to university. And then that meeting where somebody said, well, who are they? Oh, oh yes, there was a production meeting with many <laughs> raised voices. Many, many raised voices. And then suddenly the room went quiet and somebody looked around and uh, saw us. And recognized that we weren't part of the, the actual team, <laughs> and uh, and someone said, "Well, they're the writers," and everybody just flipped out. And the yeah. the director who had been doing a lot of the yelling became our best friend. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but it also was funny because in that one it was sort of like chaos theory, uh, and you can't get uh, here from there. Is at least five different sources would say is we created this show. Oh, right. And, yeah. and so, and we had all these different overlapping stories, and we were trying to say what the origin and how it had come together. And we realized that whoever has it on paper wins. And that was, yeah. Michael, and that was Pillar. Michael Pillar. And Michael Pillar had the yellow pages, which we photographed. <laughs> and, and he won. But uh, it's a collaboration, and it's often hard when it's moving fast for people to remember just exactly where something came from because it's, it's like a relay team. Well, you see that in your own writing. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And and it and it is it sparks the next person in the line and it just it goes like wildfire and if you try and then deconstruct it mm -hmm. it's difficult to say 
whose contribution was separate from someone else's because you're part of a team. Well, talking about authorship, so how does your, because you've written, I believe it is like 10 books with William Shatner now, how is the writing process there? Completely, well, completely closed. <laughs> we are, we are, we are a group of three, like the three-body problem. In <laughs> no, we, no, that that's just writing with our friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I've got, I've got images in my head of of Shatner kind of leaping around the room in a very animated style, but uh, there we are. <laughs> It's very actually. He pitched. He told us one story for the very first one, "The Ashes of Eden," and he laid out the entire story for us in about twenty minutes, doing the voices. And uh, every time he got outline, and, yes. And every every um, every time he got really excited, and there were a couple. There was a Doberman puppy in the room. Yes. And the the, the puppy's ears would go straight up as Bill got very excited and then he'd go down. But it's more its more like, because you're working with not just uh, uh, as the star, you're working with an actor and a director. And so yes. looking at it and a producer. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at it in that way so that if, if we give an outline, it would come alive in a, in a dramatic presentation after we'd written it. And so its it was an odd experience because I was just thinking that when we were talking to an actor recently for a role, and she looked at us and said, I can act that. And that's what mm. happened, I remember, with one scene with Bill. And it was dealing with the passage of time. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and Kirk is opening a gate and it's creaking. And it's giving him visions of mortality. And he said, I can act that. Mm-hmm. And so that's... Yeah, he approached all the books as if they and, were movies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that is an interesting way of doing things. Certainly from his perspective... You know, I guess that that will be the way he kind of approached it because that's that's what he knows. Certainly, you know, as you say, he's he's act, been an actor for so long, but he's directed as well. But he also knows that character so inside that yeah. he knows the voice. Of, oh yeah. So if he yeah. can't visualize the voice, it's almost a great yeah. way to yeah. keep it, the most authentic Captain Kirk on the page. Well, yeah. what we did was we watched all of any interviews with him, uh, anything where where we could hear his his voice again, but not in necessarily in track. And and we 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 channeled it. Mm, mm. Well, yeah, you're completely right in the sense of like, really, who knows Kirk now better than Bill Shatner? Because you know, obviously, Gene Roddenberry passed away. You know, from that, it's like you know, he he has been that character for kind of fifty plus years in one form or another. And so yeah, all, all, yeah. And yeah. all actors own own their parts because it's it starts, but again, it's all collaborative. Mm-hmm. So the the writer can start the process, and then the actor inhabits it. And, and Bill always said, "You have to bring what fifty percent of your." I can't remember but, if I can't remember the percentage. He, he said, it, "Any actor can play any sort of character for a movie, but if you're playing the same character week after week, you have week, to bring yourself in, into it. Inevitably, you you, you show up. You show yeah. up." And so uh, it, it's a it's a thing. It's like magic. Mm-hmm. I, I think people that aren't writers look upon it as magic that a blank page can become something. And it's the same thing when writers watch and see what actors do, mm-hmm. where they they take words that have been written and suddenly it it means something. It's like watching uh, Brana when he was doing the St. Crispin Day speech. Oh, yes, yes. Yes. And suddenly you hear you hear all the intent. Oh. You hear the intent. And uh, Henry V. And Henry V, because he was right through. Uh, and 
that it's kind of it, it seems like magic if it's not your profession. If I just go back to Phantom Twenty Forty on the day they recorded the pilot episode, and we went there, and uh, so Mark Hamill and uh, Ron Perlman. Yeah. And Mar uh, Margot Margo. Kidder, yeah. and we sat there and listened to their performances, and we never again wrote, wrote any instruction no. for any of the any roles of in Phantom Twenty Forty. No, because because the actors just made it so much better than we had put it on the page. And it's really interesting with voice acting, like for Mark Hamill, and these these were actors that could do it. Yeah, uh, is uh, how quickly they can do it because they may have just gotten the script the day before. Uh, they may have gotten the script the day of the performance. Uh, and those they can just snap into it. And they're amazing. They're amazing. So was it, it, what was it, you doing the first round? You were kind of giving kind of stage direction, like on the pilot no, we would say, in a, aim, you know, we put in the parenthesis, parentheticals, it's called, uh, where you say, but the tone, really but the tone was. Sardonic. Yes. Mm. Um, and, all the, and you never, never insulted them with that again. No. <laughs> no. Interesting. And also we found with, uh, I think when we watched um, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle being shot in yeah. the Lost World, was we realized how little we had, you know, how often you can strip writing back uh, mm -hmm. because you need to give the, the actor room to breathe. Mm -hmm. And subtext is often what you watch as a fan, much more than what they say. Mm -hmm. It's trusting they'll pick it up and, and, and know where to yeah. take it, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. You guys big Conan Doyle fans? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm a big, big Sherlock Holmes fan. Like, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so he's, he's definitely an important kind of uh, writer to me. So it's really interesting that you've been involved in that world as well. Uh, we, oh, the whole the whole Lost World genre, you know, mm. the uh, turn of the century explorations, wonderful, wonderful stuff, mm. shifting reality. Yeah, one of the yeah. first one of the first movie scripts we wrote for a studio was an updating of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah. And oh, that Jules was, Verne, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun, trying to find some semblance of scientific rationale that would make that work. <laughs> but the writers of the core couldn't get it, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of those... Well, it's like, these are the kind of stories that, like, that people keep coming back to, aren't they? Like, kind of, you know, real kind of now just benchmark kind of pieces that well it seems like the Verne like renaissance had you know threatened to come back in about like last five years like Fincher was going to be doing a 20,000 leagues under the sea which hasn't yeah. been a development hell and it's I think it, that would be kind of the if that was a hit it won't spur off adaptations of other uh, of his work because I think they're like really sort of just waiting to be kind of bought out again it's like when you've discovered these other properties with massive followings as well everybody's looking for the next Game of Thrones isn't it something yes. that can be franchised, something that kind of will get a, a, a massive line crossover to the mainstream? Mm -hmm. And I feel like yeah. the Verne novels, they kind of like, yeah, public mm -hmm. domain, there's not too much kind of worry around like adapting them in terms of that, it's just waiting for the right time, isn't it? And the yeah. right inspiration, but but absolutely, they're just sitting there waiting. Yeah, yeah. someone to take that risk. That's the thing. Well, well, it's a, well, ITV, like here in the UK, seemed to have just done uh, everything they could with like uh, Frankenstein and sort of you know gothic uh, Victorian horror, which just was oh, a massive yeah. thing. The last two years, we had Penny Dreadful. Oh yeah, uh, but there was like um, yeah various things. There was like on Christmas Day on BBC One, there was a Dickensian thing. So it's all about yeah. It was putting all the characters from his like books into 
Charles a Dickens shared universe. It's a Charles Dickens shared universe Christmas series. Yeah. yeah, that thing. Yeah, I know. It's just like it's all this public domain literature. Like, You've got like, the new New Dracula coming from Stephen Moffat as well. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's happening so, now. Yeah, that's exactly that. So these things oh. do come around. There are fads almost with like what gets picked, isn't it? <laughs> Oh boy, that'll be great. I don't know. After seeing what we do in the shadows, I don't think any other <laughs> vampire movie can ever come close. Well, it's the blazing saddles for the vampire genre. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take it seriously again. Uh, I mean, talking about that, guys, uh, what we do in the shadows, I mean, as I know you're always busy writing and stuff, but in terms of films and TV that you're watching and liking at the moment, is there anything that's really sticking out for you at the moment? We just started Daredevil last Third season. Third, third season. season, yeah. I just started yesterday as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah, and, uh, I don't know, Big Fit, the, the Marvel television series on uh, Netflix uh, mm. have really been something. It's uh, That interconnected world. Yeah, yeah, that's fun to see. And to see how they change with different showrunners mm-hmm. and as they respond mm-hmm. to um, what's worked and hasn't, because Luke Cage changed a lot. Yeah. Um, just cancelled, uh, unfortunately. Well, no, Iron Fist. No, no, they've cancelled Luke Cage as well today. They did oh, they too. Did. Today, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Just dropped. Sorry no, to break t- the news. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think it sucks because I thought season two of Luke Cage was fantastic. Well, yes. because that it had just stepped up. Yeah, well, I agree maybe, completely. Maybe they'll bring. Maybe they'll, they'll bring a, them back uh, and tuck them in. Defenders. Yeah, maybe they'll tuck them in. The number top of the list, though, uh, right now, is the Good Place. Oh yes! Oh, you love that, don't you? Mike? Yeah, it's brilliant. Are you not? On this I've yet? not watched oh, it yet. It's fantastic. It like yeah. seems to reinvent itself every four episodes in a way that sitcoms don't do. And so this is just a very propulsive kind of comedy series where it's like we're just going to explode the premise every so often. Oh yeah, I I watched. I won't, no spoiler, but yeah. I watched this week's episode. And uh, yes, it exploded the entire premise yeah. again. It was wonderful to see. Yeah, because we get it in. The, I can't remember what network it goes out on over there, but we get it on Netflix weekly. They kind of pick it up here, so yeah, we're seeing them pop up every now and then, every week, which is great. It's not hard to find, and the Endless. You just watched that one and loved that. Oh, oh the Endless. Oh yeah, The Endless. I love it. I went to a Q and A screening of it here, and then uh, over in the yeah. UK, it was it was brilliant because I love those guys. Those guys work, and I got to oh, got to see them afterwards and say how much they kind of influence a lot of stuff you know I'm doing and liking and things because their kind of DIY approach to really yeah. out there concepts is nuts. Yeah. We look, we, after we saw it, we looked it up on IMDb, and we see that you know the entire cast and crew, twenty seven. <laughs> twenty seven people yeah. versus how. Hum- 1600. Yeah, they, the they, they DP it, don't they? They do the effects, they do the tea, they do everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I think this is Roger and Eric's dream. Yes. Yes. I think we, we wrote a, a little script for Roger Lee uh, to direct uh, a couple of months ago, just a little short uh, film based okay. on a Bruce Coville short story. Mm. And um, so it was like two and a half days of shooting. Up to three in the morning every day. Yeah. And I think he had like in the in the crew photograph, there were 33 people. <laughs> and it's only going to be about eight minutes long. Yeah, it's eight so. minutes long. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what was that for? Was that just a kind of sort of practice run for him, was I, it? or? Well, I think he's thinking of doing where we're probably going to write two more of Bruce's uh, short stories. As an anthology. As a, so it makes it like a three uh, three. Put together, right, and right. one film, three shorts. Yeah, mm. and but then uh, Roger gets to have a lot of fun. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. Because you're, because um, I think you're working with Roger quite a lot, aren't you? The Captain Power thing you're doing as well. Is that another thing oh, that's going on? Phoenix Rising. Yeah, Phoenix Rising. Phoenix Rising. And you know what? What we find is when we're dealing with a lot of the older properties, that there are all sorts of issues with. Well, who ended up with these rights? Who ended up right, with those yeah. rights? So they're still going through that uh, maze. Yeah, the two things on any of the estate ones, the estates almost always have a mess with the chain of title that, because it's gone over for such a long time and things got parceled out. And then the other one is is that you have to, as a writer, look and see what's been plundered because many of them inspired, in quotes, a lot of other works. Yes. And so you, people will think, I've seen that. We found that on Flash Gordon when we were doing Flash Gordon. Oh, an animated we, series. The, right. the Alex Raymond series because, of course, Star Wars with that type marching backwards, mm -hmm. that comes straight out of Alex Raymond. Hmm. Well, this and so people would think, I've seen it already. Why are you borrowing it from Star Wars? Yeah. Well, this takes us back to what we were talking about before, actually, doesn't it? In the terms of the public domain um, stuff, unfortunately, mm. a lot. I think a lot of the reasons why uh, kind of studios and stuff struggle with making those projects work is, as we saw with something like John Carter, for instance, oh, a, a, yes. a lot of people, yeah. they see something now it's it's so old it's inspired so much that's come since everyone just watched it and goes well this is just now feels formulaic and cliche without realizing that it's they what it actually first. inspired yeah. everything yes that you but, know that is something that anybody who takes a look at a an old classic piece has to be familiar with the and territory. John, john carter is the perfect example yeah. of that they did a really good job of adapting the book but we've already seen that we've and seen james it. cameron basically tells almost the same story but he did it in a new way mm. and yeah. so avatar worked and john carter uh, didn't but as writers what we love is that that's just a challenge mm -hmm. so we first of all find out scour the territory find out what's what's been shown and then you look because these were talented uh, original writers and mm -hmm. you look and you find the things that everybody else missed and that worked to the essential themes of that writer and you pull those out. We certainly had to do that with Andre Norton. Um, and Galactic and Galactic, definitely. And we had to do that with um, Witch World because, of course, Stargate had been out there with all the portals. Mm -hmm. And we had to do that uh, with Beastmaster so that you found a way to accommodate what people expect to see, which wasn't in the source material, but was out there in other media. Mm -hmm. And But that that's a challenge. And, and mm -hmm. actually, we always... Yeah, we like the challenges. Well, it's good that you've acknowledged that, really. You're aware of that issue so that you can prepare for it when adapting kind of stuff like that. Yeah, and, and, it's, and it's terrible when the studios actually turn to the source material and look at it, and it's uh, 60 years old. <laughs> and they, and they, they pick it up and they think, oh, where's the story in this? Or, or you know, like, well, listen to the way they're talking, you know, and... Um, and you, but you want you know that there are some wonderful wonderful ideas still in there that haven't been brought to picture again mm -hmm. and that'll be the same when people do burn uh do jules mm -hmm. burn again and uh and it's you know you just keep reinventing it it's like track it's finding that balance of jettisoning like parts that are too over familiar now and yet being faithful to what it is it's like having to mm -hmm. You know, even if you're doing a direct adaptation, keeping it new and fresh, but also like yeah, being aware enough to say like, well, we can't maybe have this bit like this or that like that, and then hopefully get it out there without people going, oh, this isn't the the, the source at all, and hating you for it. And yeah, <laughs> finding that balance. 
and also that people can go back to the source material and still feel it's part of the family. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And because you don't want to have them feel that they're completely divorced and someone's walking around saying, well, we had the title. And they have created something brand new and just put that title on for brand awareness. Do you feel much so, need to sort of pander to the 1982 Beastmaster audience? Like, <laughs> not pandering. <laughs> well, I just wondered, like, how much softcore there might be in it. We, we, we found a way to blend it in so it became perfectly part of the saga. Yes. Yes. Lovely. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> very much, very much look well, forward to it. I mean, it sounds like you guys got those exciting projects and a uh, all-life pass to all the Disney parks now. <laughs> Uh, for that, like, uh, I mean, that sounds really exciting in terms of, you know, what yeah, terrified kids in China. Like, yeah. It's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Our life has not we, been in vain. We took that off the bucket list. They'll <laughs> <laughs> thank you in your order, and they're all horror writers. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, guys, it's been really great chatting to you about all these kind of different projects, and we're really looking forward to kind of seeing all these things come to fruition and stuff. And definitely interested in terms of the uh, the furnace that about uh, shoot potentially kind of making something in London and everything like that. If if you guys are ever over here, definitely let us know. We will definitely put you in our contact list for that. That would be terrific. Last time we were in London was for <laughs> yeah. Primeval. Yeah, last time we were there was for Primeval. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, that's a weird one because obviously oh, yeah. that, in terms of, was a British show, and I mean, I remember that coming out. Uh, oh, a sticker album. Well, yeah, because yeah, <laughs> obviously it was in this time when, for for a long time, sci-fi was a was a bad word in British television. Like you know, after oh. Doctor Who originally got cancelled in the late eighties, between it coming back, there's hardly any sci-fi shows on British yeah. TV that aren't kind of imports. Then Doctor Who came back 2005, big hit. Suddenly ITV are like, right, we need our Doctor Who. Primeval comes out. And then you guys ended up making the spin-off, which was actually a Canadian production. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. We were hired to sort of birth parents and, uh, and get the series greenlit. So we wrote a pilot and did the format, and then it was handed over to the adoptive parents, who then took it <laughs> took it into series. Uh, but but we we got it started, and and that was it was just well there were other stories that could be told, there were, yeah, uh, but it, I don't think it, it didn't last past that first year. But it sounded like it got quite well received. I mean, I believe it. Say it sounds like it was quite well loved. It won kind of like awards and stuff. Is from what I saw. We we, we got awards. We won awards, <laughs> not the show. Like, <laughs> for being birth parents, yes, we were awarded for being birth parents uh, for creating. Uh, it's and, the yellow uh, sheet again. Yeah. It's, uh, it's <laughs> yeah, 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 throw it out. Like, uh, but yeah, I mean, that is, yeah, it's an interesting one, definitely how that came about. It seems like an odd, you know, I've never really heard of that before, kind of, you know, like a British show that became, I mean, was it just really big in Canada or something? Yes, yeah, science fiction is science enormous. Fiction. Science fiction television is huge, huge in Canada. Right, okay. It, it, the population, it's the percentage those, of the population... It's all those long winters. <laughs> <it's> long winters. <laughs> That's right. But the percentage <laughs> of the population that watches science fiction is at least triple what it would be in the United States. It's Canadian a, minds are open. Yeah, it's an odd thing. So the, um, the Canadian science fiction station, Space, yes. it used yes. to be called Space. 
was a um, huge community. And they would they would often there'd be a made in Canada show for space that would also be shown in the States on sci-fi. And uh, sci-fi would then unfortunately they had, you know, they, they were contributing the most money to the production. They canceled a lot of things. And space is space when they look at their Doctor Who numbers. It's gigantic yeah. percentage-wise compared to the States. And yeah. um, it's just it's a, a different audience, much more receptive to science fiction. And so Primeval, and, you know, the first Primeval uh, limited series is magnificent. It is just a, a great tightly told story that all falls together. And it did exceptionally well in Canada. The Canadian production company had done a show where they had um, licensed, um, gosh, Voyage to the Solar System or something from Impossible Pictures. Uh, and they'd used it for Defying Gravity, uh, a show that only lasted a season. But their partnership worked out well. And they thought, well, is there another show that you did that we can remake and or license in Canada? And that's where and that's, that's the world. what the origin of was, which is why then they, they went out. Yeah. But the the length of time for those deals, because they phoned us up one day and said, hey, would you be interested in uh, coming up with a spinoff series, The Primeval? And we said, sure. A year later, they called back and asked if we would like to pitch it. Yeah. <laughs> Literally a year. Yeah. <laughs> so you had one year to come up with a great idea. <laughs> uh, we came up with it in the weekend. Yeah, and we came up That's with right. it in the weekend. And then we pitched it three times. That seems yeah. to be the thing. And then they That's said, right. okay, you're on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it's really interesting. Just another kind of example of, like, you know, this incredibly varied career that you guys have had and uh, will will continue to have from what, what it seems. It just seems to get more and more exciting in terms of what you're doing. And, well, uh, we love it. I think it's all career. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we fully plan on being the uh, people on the furnace set who someone turns around to and go, who are these guys? <laughs> Get them off the set. Um, the set looks like it could be salt mines in Romania. I mean, it lo- looks so much like London. Like, yeah. <laughs> it has like, as above surface territory, but... The majority of it takes place underground. Yeah. They showed yes. us photographs of this, of this Romanian salt mine. Which and, has a theme park inside it. Right. Oh, and it, it, yeah. it, it, it looks as if Alex saw photographs Actually, of yes. the salt mine and said, oh, that's what I'll make my prison. It's, it's perfect. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely perfect. And you guys getting linked in with theme parks again. I hope not. <laughs> not in a Romanian salt mine. Yeah, yeah. I, I we'll think a little step down. <laughs> yeah, from Disney Shanghai to Romanian salt mine. Oh boy! <laughs> I guess we have limits. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, you'd definitely be scaring the children with that one. So. <laughs> How about scaring the riders? That's right. Uh, part of it. Next theme park ride. Work on the mines. <laughs> <laughs> Never be seen again. Is it just Temple of Doom? Is it? <laughs> well, it's been really great, chatting, guys, and we, like thanks so much for coming on the show and chatting with us about your experiences. It's been really great, and we hope you've enjoyed it as well. Oh, oh been, lots of fun! Enormously wide-ranging and all fun. Awesome! I'm really, really glad. Well, yeah, and no, I hope to speak to you again at some point. And as I say, definitely keep us up to date with all your projects, and definitely excited to hear more. And best of luck with all of them. Yeah. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and drop us a message directly by emailing spotlightpod at gmail.com.